A continent in the crosshairs. The U.S. is signaling plans for a more active economic presence in several African countries. That's as the Chinese regime's Belt and Road Initiative stakes its influence there. The Chinese infrastructure plan has also been dubbed debt trap diplomacy. Under it, over $100 billion have flooded into African countries over the years. But why is Africa so important to these two superpowers? And should the U.S. be pouring more money into the region? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's 10-day trip to Africa is underway. In an interview, she voiced U.S. desire to deepen engagement with Africa and sent the message that America's presence on the continent is here to stay. The The Biden administration is signaling support for improving African economies. The boosted emphasis on the continent is part of U.S. efforts to counter China's influence and investment and offer an alternative. Many African countries are now plagued by high and unsustainable debt, and that's undeniably a problem, and much of it is related to Chinese Chinese investments um, in Africa. So I think that's simply a factual statement. But um, this is not for us. This is not a competition with China. The comment hits at Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative, China's state-run infrastructure program. Under it, the country invests in less developed nations. Critics have labeled it China's debt trap diplomacy. That's for its history of seizing control of finished infrastructure projects overseas, when the host nations are unable to pay back their Chinese loans. We want to make sure that we don't create the same problems that Chinese investment has sometimes created here, Um, that we have transparency, that we have projects that really bring broad-based benefits uh, to the African people and don't leave a legacy of unsustainable debt. Yellen also pointed out Africa's rapidly growing young population, adding that the U.S., quote, is here as a partner to help Africa realize its massive economic potential at home and advance its growing leadership abroad. To showcase that pledge, the first stop of Yellen's Zambia visit was a tour of Mylan Laboratories. The company is a subsidiary of American pharmaceutical manufacturer Viatris. It manufactures drugs that treat malaria and HIV. The facility was expanded in 2015 with Chinese financing. Zambia became Africa's first pandemic-era sovereign state to default when it failed to make a $42.5 million bond payment in November 2020. Negotiations over how to deal with that debt load are ongoing. Yellen meets with Zambia's president and finance minister on Monday. She's expected to push for the Chinese side to continue those debt negotiations. How much has Beijing invested in Africa? China has lent about $150 billion to African countries since the turn of the century. This according to Global Development Policy Center at Boston University and the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. But there's more. A West African nation called Benin just signed a memorandum with China earlier this month. The agreement covers a partial debt cancellation and was finalized during a Chinese foreign minister's visit to the continent. The amount of the cancellation wasn't announced. In another case, Beijing announced the cancellation of up to $610 million of debt last summer, owed by African countries to China. Frank Xie, business professor at the University of South Carolina, Ankin, offered his take on Beijing's motivation for the move. 
He said the Chinese Communist Party canceled the debt under pressure from the international community. On top of that, Beijing saw no possibility of getting its invested funds back from Africa. She added that the situation signals a failure for Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative on the continent. Actually, the CCP hasn't done a good evaluation when investing in Africa. It doesn't necessarily know how to evaluate the feasibility of such investment projects in African countries full of war, corruption, diseases and poverty. Many of these investments were done for strategic and political purposes. Now it seems there is no way to get return for these investments. Xie said he believes that in 2023, the U.S. and China will increase their competition in Africa and noted that helping African countries move towards democracy and freedom will prove a critical investment for Washington. Looking at those updates coming out of Africa, what makes the continent so important for the U.S. and the globe? It all comes down to two factors that support our way of life, technology and resources. Africa is a resource-rich continent, and materials that come from the region are essential for creating modern technology. Africa houses up to 90% of the world's corium and platinum, and the globe's largest cobalt reserves. These three materials are considered rare earth minerals. Without them, modern electronics would not be possible. China rang in the Lunar New Year on Sunday, the nation's people largely praying for good health in 2023 after three years of stress under the pandemic. At the same time, concerns are rising over a mass migration of travelers who are looking to celebrate. And experts warn that a second wave of COVID-19 infections could be just beginning. Here's the latest. Long lines stretch for half a mile outside the iconic Lama Temple in Beijing, which had been repeatedly shuttered before COVID-19 restrictions ended in early December. Thousands of people waiting for their turn to pray for their loved ones. This marks the first Lunar New Year in two years without COVID-19 restrictions. Celebrating with his family, real estate professional Guo Jin says he wishes for prosperous business and restored production, but most importantly, good health. We have a senior in our family. He is in his 80s. I hope he stays healthy, he says. But not all families are as lucky. The Lunar New Year is a traditional holiday focused on family unity. Now, the celebrations appear to take a different kind of toll. In one video clip, a Chinese resident said her cousin's whole family died before the holiday. She explained that the family of four had tested positive and remained infected for more than 20 days. They decided to take a steam bath, hoping it would improve their condition. But instead, they fainted in the bath and later died. Another family lost three of its members. Earlier this month, three caskets were carried out of this house on the same day. They held a mother, a father, and a son in his 40s. In yet another video, a family's youngest son held photos of his parents and grandparent who passed away. At the same time, his older brother was struggling to recover from illness in the hospital. 
On the eve of Lunar New Year, more than 26 million trips were made by road, rail, ships and planes. The numbers hit half of pre-pandemic levels, but mark a 50% surge from last year. That's according to Chinese state media. As millions of migrant workers return home for Lunar New Year celebrations, health experts are particularly concerned about people living in China's vast countryside where medical facilities are poor compared with those in richer coastal areas. China's official COVID-19 death toll facing new questions. The death toll in one single city now twice as high as the official death toll for the whole country. Shanghai is China's financial hub. The death toll in the city has been increasing dramatically since early December, when the Chinese Communist Party lifted pandemic restrictions. Reporters from NTD's sister media, the Epoch Times, reached out to Shanghai's funeral homes by phone. Analyzing their public data, they estimate that right now, at least 2,640 human remains are being burned daily in the city. That's 10 times the amount for a normal year. Even running at this speed, the city's current funeral home capacity still can't cover demand. There are now about 30,000 corpses on wait lists for cremation. The longest wait time at one local funeral home is two weeks. Removing the estimated numbers of natural deaths from that tally, about 125,000 people in Shanghai could have died of COVID-19 from the beginning of December to last week. That's more than twice the death toll the Chinese Communist Party recently announced for the whole of China, which sits at 60,000. The Chinese Communist Party said critical COVID-19 cases have peaked in China, suggesting the country's situation will start to improve. But the fact is, funeral products are still in short supply in different cities. We spoke with several manufacturers to find out more. While COVID-19 deaths are straining China's hospitals and funeral homes, makers of funeral supplies are also putting in extra hours. An urn manufacturer says their products are in short supply due to tremendous demand. We can't manage to produce that many before the Lunar New Year because this year, to be honest, there are too many deaths and too much demand. That's why we couldn't make it. Yang added that production will only be able to catch up after February. Unable to procure caskets, some funeral homes have resorted to wrapping bodies in white sheets. For families that can afford neither a coffin nor funeral services, they have no choice but to settle for a simple burial. One urn manufacturer says he has never seen sales reach this level before. That's how the market is right now. It's just this time of year. It's never happened before. Because of the pandemic, isn't it? Aren't you aware of that? Orders for cremation furnaces are also growing, as funeral homes rush to cremate remains. Cremator manufacturers are feeling the pinch, but say they can't do anything about it. They're not in stock right now. There's nothing readily available. We can't make them. That's it. We aren't able to produce more. Other funeral supply makers say production may resume in a few weeks after workers return from the Lunar New Year holiday. In search of white sandy beaches and mango sticky rice, Chinese tourists are flocking to Thailand. At the same time, Indonesia welcomed its first flight of Chinese tourists to the resort island of Bali on Sunday. It marks the travelers' first trip abroad in years. Because of the pandemic, we hadn't been out of China for three years. Now that we can leave and come here for holiday, I feel so happy and emotional.
I'm very happy because for three years uh, we can't go outside, but now we can. And uh, the first place I come is Indonesia. That joy is two-sided, with the returning Chinese tourists also bringing relief to resorts and travel companies. Some of them saying they've rehired Chinese-speaking staff and stocked up on the tourists' favorite menu items. China is one of the biggest sources of tourists for both Thailand and Indonesia. Thailand clocked 40 million foreign tourists' arrivals in pre-pandemic 2019, while Bali counted nearly 2 million. A top U.S. intelligence officer is raising concerns about China's artificial intelligence program. At the World Economic Forum on Thursday, FBI Chief Christopher Wray said Beijing could use its AI to harm the U.S. and the world. Here's his comment. Their AI program is not constrained by the rule of law, uh, is built on top of the massive troves of intellectual property uh, and sensitive data that they've stolen over the years. Uh, and will be used uh, unless checked uh, to advance that same hacking program, to advance that same intellectual property theft, to advance the repression uh, that occurs not just uh, back home in mainland China, but increasingly is uh, a product that they export around the world. Ray said these are issues that the U.S. is deeply concerned about. Back in late 2021, U.S. officials also warned about China's AI ambitions. They told businesses, academics, and government officials about the risks of accepting Chinese investment or expertise in key industries. China's telecom giant Huawei was once considered a major player in the smartphone market. But the U.S. sanctions sent that tumbling. To revive those lost profits, the company is looking at a different future. And it looks like this. Technicians inside control rooms monitoring animated cranes as they move cargo containers onto self-driving trucks. The new smart port is a data network built by Huawei. By supplying technology used in factories and car-making plants, the company hopes to be less vulnerable to U.S. pressure. Huawei is something that's very dangerous. Huawei started struggling after then-President Donald Trump cut off its access to American microchips and other technology in 2019. Washington says Huawei could facilitate Chinese spying and that it poses a security risk. U.S. allies like Japan and Australia have also banned or restricted Huawei equipment. Likewise, its smartphone sales outside China collapsed after the company lost preloaded services from Google. Those include apps for music and maps. Looking at the bigger picture, Huawei's refocus toward automation also addresses China's largest existential threat, population decline. We are all faced with the problems of how to reduce labor intensity while increasing the working efficiency of port terminals. The ruling Communist Party has been rolling out new kinds of automation to get ahead of labor shortages. And urgency to take the shift further is rising. That's given the size of China's working age population that shrank by more than 5 million people in the last decade. Largely as a result of the one-child policy enacted in the late 1970s. And now, an announcement. NTD recently published an article from Mr. Li Hongzhi, the founder of the spiritual practice Falun Gong. Mr. Li says it contains an urgent message for the world's people and authorized NTD to publish the article. 
Falun Gong is a spiritual discipline based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. The article is translated from Chinese. It's called How Humankind Came to Be. The article can be found on ntd.com or click the link below if you like watching online. Coming up, Americans' lack of trust in the U.S. intelligence community and how that could benefit China and Russia. We spoke to Pete Hoekstra, former House Intelligence Committee chairman and former ambassador to the Netherlands, for more on why that is and about actions that might help counter it. Get the details in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. An erosion of trust in the U.S. intelligence community. Why is it benefiting China and Russia? And how can Washington counter it? We spoke to Pete Hoekstra, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and former ambassador to the Netherlands, for details. So recently you wrote an op-ed in the Gatestone Institute titled Destroying American Democracy and Inside Jobs. So explain to us what you're seeing happening here. Well, you know, in the last couple of weeks, uh, through all the different Twitter exposés, you saw some information that said the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, they were meeting with Twitter executives or Twitter staff regularly, basically deciding what was real information and what might be disinformation uh, theoretically saying, okay, hey, you can let this information get through and this other information, you know, you ought to block it. You, you shouldn't let the people see it. And you sit there and say, number one, that was never the responsibility of the intelligence community. There was always a wall between the intelligence community and domestic, you know, domestic businesses, uh, domestic policy and those types of things. Then you get to the Hunter Biden laptop two years later where you get 51 former intelligence officials saying, Hunter Biden laptop, you know, that's not real. We find out two years later, oh, no, it was all real. And so, you know, when you start politicizing intelligence, it's decay and it's destroying America. It's destroying our political process. It's not coming from the Russians. It's not coming from the Chinese. Uh, or maybe it is coming from the Russians, the Chinese, but it's also coming from in, from within the United States. Ambassador, on that last point, it almost does sound like something you would see in, say, Russia or China. But given what's happening here, how is that maybe helping China or Russia? Well, what it does is it sows seeds of doubt about our own, you know, established uh, departments. It casts doubt. Can we really trust the FBI? Can we trust the Department of Homeland Security? Can we trust our own intelligence community? Uh, so, you know, it, it actually divides Americans. It casts doubt about, you know, some of our premier institutions. And that then, you know, creates the opportunity for China and Russia. Ambassador, on that note of division, it seems when we talk about the Chinese communist regime especially, there's that term unrestricted warfare, right, where they try to win without even fighting in the conventional sense of a military power, but really through division. 
Well, I think uh, number one, the defense uh, is total transparency. Okay, we need we need a transparent society. We need to let bad ideas come out into the public, uh, so we can shoot them down and dispel them. But we don't need government uh, doing that. So one is total transparency, more transparency, uh, and openness. The second is to keep our government institutions out of those kinds of activities where they are censoring data and deciding what the American people can and cannot see. You know, where you've got people like Adam Schiff, the former chairman of the Intelligence uh, Committee, who is lying to Congress uh, and his colleagues and the American people during the impeachment of Donald Trump, saying, I've got more information. Don't worry. We've got uh, we've got all kinds of secret information that clearly implicates that uh, Donald Trump has done the wrong things. So, so we've got to hold our agencies and institutions accountable, uh, including our elected leaders. What it gets to is bureaucrats in these institutions decided that they had a role to play in determining the political direction of our country and determining the outcome of our elections. It's very, very frightening. And that's why I say it's decay of our republic, our democracy from within. And Ambassador, it seems right now there is more geopolitical concerns too on the world stage, whether that's with Ukraine and if Russia will do anything or with a more aggressive Beijing in terms of say Taiwan and other areas. What does having this distrust in our own institutions because of more government impact? Well, what happens I think is the American people look at this and they see a, you know an intelligence report coming from our intelligence community coming from the director of national intelligence. And the question that the American people have is, okay, is this really what they're seeing or has this been, you know, tinged uh, from a political agenda? Actually, this goes all the way back to, remember, weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. Uh, you know, there, there was originally, you know, it's kind of like, wow, the, the evidence is overwhelming. And then we find out later that, well, maybe it wasn't quite as overwhelming. Uh, and you put that together, the, you know, it's almost now a 20-year history uh, of this. And so if we can't trust our intelligence community uh, for the information that we're receiving from them, how are the American people going to make informed judgments uh, on the problems and the crises that we see on an international basis. Doesn't mean we'll all end up at the same place. And Ambassador, on that part with solutions, kind of two parts, you've mentioned holding people accountable. So what would that look like? And then from the, say, concerned citizen perspective, what should they do to make sure they can regain this trust? If you're James Clapper and you're the off, you're director of national intelligence and you lie to the Senate in 2013, you're removed from your job. Now, what happened in 2017 when they briefed President Trump, that was early January, they were out of a job a couple of weeks later uh, because there was a new administration coming in. Uh, but you know what, you have to have the media hold them accountable uh, rather than, you know, what happened to, what happened to Clapper and the people uh, that, you know, perpetuated the Russia hoax in 2017. Well, number one, they ended up working for CNN. Uh, you know, they were recognized with media awards for their re 
for their investigation and their reporting uh, on the Russia hoax. And at nowhere, you know, when it became apparent that the Russia hoax was a hoax and the reporting was all wrong, you know, these rewards are never uh, retracted or held back. But again, what the government's been doing over the last couple of years, they've been taking this alternative narrative and they've just been pushing it aside, whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop, whether it's COVID, origins of COVID, uh, the vaccine and all of those kinds of things. The thing that really amazes me, why are not the American people furious? They were censored and censored by the government uh, in some cases, for more than two years. Uh, it's one of the things that really astounds me is that the outrage is not there. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.